Okay, so we had a lot of questions during the presentation. One thing um, that I think would be worth doing, since we've alluded over and over again to the HCV guidelines website, is to literally take you there and you can see it. So a lot of folks who've already been treating HCV for a while, um, you know, focusing on the drug-drug interactions is something that you can immediately relate to because you've experienced it. For those of you who are just starting out, you probably thought, well, gosh, I'm a little, I'm a little lost in the drug-drug interaction. So we're going to take you to the website just quickly so for those of you who haven't treated before can actually see how to do that. The Liverpool website, I couldn't agree more, is, is just a great place. It's just easy to use, and, and it, you, you, not everybody has gin down the hall. Yep, there you go. Um, you walk out yeah, well, here, here we go. So you click on interaction, just watch how easy it is. You type in, and if you use the brand name, it will translate it. So if you know it by brand name, it's cool. Um, so here, we're typing in a meprazole. You heard about that just now, and it gives you information. And how to administer, it's really great. I mean, I know the pharmacists have been using it, but like if you're on your own treating, as I've heard some of you will be, this is fantastic. Um, it's about to put an amiodarone, which is a no-go, a big no-go. You see, do not co-administer. All right? So just a little video showing you how this works. It's those three websites we've taught you about get you really far. Great. All right. So you just heard about uh, her patient with this unfortunate scenario where you're not sure if uh, the patient is um, reinfected or relapsed, and I guess that's an ongoing um, possibility there. So now we're going to talk um, about active substance use. So um, I see you smiling. Yes. So um, now the renal failure part of this talk is really short. So uh, just telling you about options. It's really focused on substance use. Um, I won't even poll, but like how many of your patients have some sort of substance use problem, um, at least in their past or perhaps even more present. And so um, it's good to hear about um, whether or not the sobriety restrictions come into play. In our state, it's simply a checkbox attesting we think this patient can make it through treatment despite the substance use. We don't have to drug test or prove anything. There are many states which needed that marijuana to be negative and, you know, really quite hard. So we'll describe the special considerations for those with recent histories of drug use and tell you about the data for hep C treatment in this population and what you, how that affects uh, practice. So if I talk about treatment of acute infection, that's not on any label for any of these agents, but I will talk about that briefly. So I'll present a case as we were trying this afternoon. A 21-year-old woman with um, a congenital um, kidney disease uh, progresses to end-stage renal disease, and she's unfortunately on dialysis by age 17, and she also has associated issues related to the renal disease. And she's been waiting on the deceased donor uh, renal transplant list for two years, but she presents uh, with a new hep C antibody seroconversion. It's meant in dialysis centers to test yearly. There used to be outbreaks related to that dialysis centers in our country, but that was largely um, gone away with sort of careful infection control. Unfortunately, around the world, dialysis isn't necessarily safe. I hear about outbreaks that are going on in other countries and whatnot. Medical care is a big promoter of hep C um, uh, transmission. And so um, she uses intermittent substances. Now, she only admits to snorted cocaine and heroin and denies injection. 
No new tattoos. There are people who sometimes in a tattoo parlor with a license, it's usually okay, but in terms of a tattoo that's sometimes done in backyard parties or definitely in prison, those are not particularly safe. Um, no blood transfusions, the spider anemia, and so her testing shows an elevated ALT, 274, that's typically higher, right? We heard about your patient with three, 300s due to alcohol, but this is typically higher than your average chronic hep C patient. And so, uh, and the remainder of other testing is negative, and you can also test her for acute hep A and hep B, but it really does make you worry about a certain entity. So I'm kind of giving this away a little bit, but what's the most likely scenario here? Chronic hep C with a falsely negative antibody, and she has cocaine-related reasons for elevated ALT. She has chronic hep C with alcohol use, and she's not telling you about it. She has acute hep C due to contaminated medical equipment, or she has acute hep C related to opioid drug use. Which do you think is the most likely scenario, or other? The cop-out answer there. You can answer it. Okay, we're getting responses. We are. Okay, it's on. It should be on. This is Bewitched. Sorry. Yeah, it's been a while since I've seen these shows. I can't wiggle my nose. All right. Well, overwhelmingly, not surprisingly, you're thinking about her opioids. And so is she under-reporting injection? That's one scenario. But there are studies now. Uh, we used to worry about snorted cocaine in particular because, you know, that makes sense. There's little microabrasions, vasoconstriction and whatnot, but why opioids? There are definitely some studies, like from Tennessee and whatnot, which are reporting uh, individuals with hep C who only report snorting as a risk factor. So it's kind of new since we're learning real time about these new, um, about hep C in this population. Um, this is just a reminder about the one-time testing, which um, uh, was alluded to, the sort of baby boomer plus risk factors. I mean, how many questions are there here? This slide is not meant to teach you this, but to show how complicated it is to like apply this. And so would it have been easier? I mean, she's gonna get tested because she's on dialysis, but let's say you have a lot of young people in your community, they may be under-reporting drug use to you. Um, there's a lot of reasons why you may not properly screen individuals who may be, may be contracting hepatitis C. Um, and so, uh, again, uh, Mike alluded to the possible push for universal type testing. But the more important recommendation is what do you do for patients with ongoing risk factors? You screen them yearly, at least yearly. So if you look more closely at the guidelines, they'll talk about whether you should screen more often. And I'll show you sort of some case that would uh, demonstrate that. So it says um, periodic testing, which is rather vague, should be offered for those um, with ongoing exposures. And so what you might have is someone who tests negative. They use drugs in the past, they're in a cycle of perhaps using at times, relapsing at other times, being on uh, buprenorphine-based therapy and going on and off. And so how often do you um, rescreen them? Well, many will have perhaps a new partner that they share with or a new, uh, or they might have slipped up even once and then that could be an indication for repeat screening. So the acute phase, just as a reminder, the chronic phase is pretty easy to diagnose. But uh, the acute phase, um, there is this period or a window period where there is hep C RNA before antibody, which usually lasts a few weeks. So if you have a high-risk individual and you're worried about them, you can consider screening with a hep C RNA. A more cost-effective approach might be ALT as well, because you can catch them during an ALT outbreak. But I'll show you a case in a moment um, where it may not catch things. Now, usually we're looking later, right? We're not often catching people in those first few months of infection. and so. In the case of spontaneous clearance, which is a reality, many patients, that's why we do this two-stage testing. And that's why when you test an antibody, 
You shouldn't tell the patient, oh, you have hep C. You might have hep C, right? You could have either cleared or chronic infection. And many patients get confused because that antibody stays positive for life, and they're like, oh, it's not really cured. You keep talking about cure, but it's not really cured because that antibody's positive. Try to explain it's an exposure versus the virus test. And so usually we're encountering people out here with sort of this lower level of ALT activity. Now, um, that's showing this ALT spike. I have to say the ALT spike, as one zero converts, you can test people regularly. It can be highly variable. You can have people who have it in the thousands and they're jaundiced and symptomatic, but that's really rare. How many cases are out there where they don't present to medical care? Usually the ALT rise is in the hundreds, but there are even cases that they follow, people who inject drugs monthly, and the ALT triples, but it goes from 14 to 42, nothing that really makes you uh, go wild. And so uh, it's highly variable and mostly asymptomatic. And the factors associated with clearance are actually like the young individual I presented, uh, a woman who's young particularly, um, uh, uh, race in particular, and certain genes. Um, the IL-28B gene, which was alluded to earlier in terms of interferon response, turns out that's also related to spontaneous clearance. If you have a good immune system, actually if you're more symptomatic, you're more likely to clear. So this is just a case, um, the animation's kind of disappeared, but just showing you three different time points in the course of acute FC infection. This is an HIV positive individual who came in for labs at, at minus 10, and he comes in and he has like ALT in the thousands. His bilirubin's quite high, it doesn't, not shown here. And he's darker skinned um, gentleman, and so nobody really noticed drawing his blood that he was yellow, he's feeling a little bit viral. So, I mean, really easy to diagnose. He's negative at that time, the RNA is positive, and then he seroconverts actually pretty rapidly. Now, let's say he just delayed his appointment, said, I'm not feeling well today, I'll just come in a few weeks later. Now, now the only thing you're, that you're testing in the lab is the ALT, and it may not trigger a lot. You may say, okay, we'll just repeat that at his next HIV visit, which we're spacing out now to like six months later, and so they could go six months before you do the RNA testing or, or the antibody testing that then identifies the infection that they could be out there transmitting to others. If he came in on this day, just a week later, the ALT is normal and you miss the whole thing. So it kind of shows you that a, the acute hep C is a dynamic process with a lot going on here. You know, that can be up and down and viral fluctuations are part of it. And so think about it, especially in um, patients that have risk factors and with elevated transaminases, but many underreport those risks. And so um, in certain clinics, it might be important to regularly uh, apply testing and ask about some of the details about how they're using, the paraphernalia they're using. Do you have a new person in your network? Oftentimes we have like romantically involved couples, usually heterosexual, males, females, and um, that's how it enters the couple. One of them kind of cheats with needles on, with somebody else. I have to say nine times out of 10, it's the guy's fault. <laughs> so, you know. Having it be the man's fault gets me far in my marriage, and so it just works out that way. But in this case, it's actually quite anecdotally true. Um, and so, yeah, if you screen regularly, that's important. And if you see these low viral loads, that's also an indication that maybe in a new diagnosis patient that maybe they're still in that first few months where they might clear. And so should we treat our hep C now? Any responses to that? Let's tr try to, what's your gestalt? You don't have to think too much. What's your gut feeling? Any guesses? I, I'm not getting that one. Some sort of, what is it? The Incredible? Nice. All right, let's see what you guys responded. No, let's wait for spontaneous clearance. Okay, that's reasonable. I mean, she's 
probably in the first few months. She's a young female. She has some of the factors. She's not symptomatic, however, so you know she has some countervailing things. Yes. I think we. This was actually discussed at the uh, Opman. I think. Um, <clears throat> I think the counter arguments were one: spontaneous clearance is fifteen percent of the time, um, and secondly, she can infect other people. And what's the, the treatment so easy? Why not get rid of it for? Her? We're worried about her, sorry, um, because she's a woman of childbearing age. So there's another impetus in addition to the transmission issue that if she were to become pregnant, don't want to leave that infection alone. There's a 5% risk of transmission, and this was alluded to earlier. Um, and we're also thinking about it in terms of transmission. So you brought up the transmission risk. And so when you think about hep C, and you think about an individual, they tend not to have a big circle of you know, people that they share with. You know, it's kind of changed from perhaps houses where there are 10 people in a room all using to like basements and you know, decentralization, I guess, and of not only drug distribution or whatnot. I don't know your local situation, but that's often the situation where uh, you're shaking your head. I don't, I don't know. But it, it's happening in suburban basements and you know, all sorts of places in smaller duos and tri tri trios or whatnot. But the point is a person is not necessarily exposed to that many people the way a highly contagious virus would be. Um, so the number of contacts per unit of time may be low. The probability of transmission is kind of actually low. If I took a needle, and Jen, who just happens to be next to me, we share a needle, and I have hep C, and she puts it under her skin, it's about a 1% transmission risk. It's not that high. The problem is when you're using it over and over again with the same individual, right? You add up those 1% risks. The real problem with transmission is the duration. We're leaving a lot of patients out there with chronic infection that does not go away, a trillion particles a day, and so that's kind of what drives the r naught, or it has to be greater than one to sustain transmission in a community. And so when you think about hep C, you know, clean injection equipment, I know that um, syringe exchange is not yet legal here, or not, no, uh, does decrease things, we'll go over the data. It's really the duration that I think I'm worried about. Uh, and then the other thing is, um, this knowledge of infectious status may affect behaviors and why so many patients may get regular antibody testing and be told they might have hep C but then not follow up with the RNA testing and not know whether they're infectious to others. So I think there's another double importance to get that testing. So that, because some people say, oh, I got hep C, I'll just not be careful anymore. I won't care who I share with. There are other reasons to be careful, hep B and HIV, et cetera. So I think this is uh, one of the drivers of why we're seeing things. This is just a schematic of some of these injection drug using networks in Australia of people who say who they're sharing with and then they say who they're sharing with. You can see they can become linked, but there are a lot of folks that just report like these sort of dyad things. But obviously if you just little, must be linked at some point because it gets transmitted. So the point of this slide is actually to talk about other modes of trying to reduce reinfection risk is to treat partners. So if you're seeing a patient and you know someone in the partner, hey, bring your friend. So that's one approach. The other thing is that you just brought up with, with why we are treating high-risk populations is can we actually reduce incidence and, I mean, are we just deferring costs by allowing hundreds, if not in our state, thousands of cases in youth under 30, thousands. You do that math and you're like, we gotta do something about that. Are you just deferring those costs in the future by not treating as early as possible, whether it's 
acute phase or, or whether it's um, a low fibrosis score, you know, early phase, young patients. And so this is um, HIV positive MSM, which we haven't talked a lot about. In any board's question, you'll have like the two biggest risk folks in the Western world for getting hep C, and that's uh, people who inject drugs, and the other group is HIV positive MSM. And so in the Netherlands, they de-restricted access to these novel agents a couple years ago. And what they saw in 2014, um, you know, it's, it's a small country. They can kind of centralize um, their system so they know how many acute cases they have in these HIV-positive individuals who are followed regularly. And then they de-restricted, 70% got treated. And then they saw half the number of cases next year. And you're like, well, maybe that's just like chance, right? It's just one year, it's just one signal. Did men in the Netherlands stop having sex in 2015? No, all right? So, I mean, there's, you can reduce drugs with opioid agonist therapy. I'm not aware of a pill that's like sex agonist therapy. If you know of one, we should all invest in it because that's a winner. But, um, sorry, that didn't go over as well as I thought it might. Um, there was no decrease in STDs. So they were still having sex in other STDs like syphilis and LGV. As a reminder, this is largely sexual transmission of hep C in this population. So that's indirect but one of the first evidence, real life evidence, rather than relying on models which say, oh yeah, if we treat this number of people, maybe we'll get redu reduction in prevalence. This is the first kind of real world evidence. Another piece of real world evidence happened in Iceland. Now Iceland, they started treating again in January 16. They de-restricted and allowed a lot of patients to be treated. And they just saw this marked decline in prevalence of active hep C in their substance use clinic. Now, Iceland is literally an island where maybe it's hard to introduce hep C from other jurisdictions. In New England, we got a bunch of states kind of all together, and we have varying policies. So, like, if you treat well in Massachusetts, maybe another state which has a lot of hep C could still be importing it. But the Iceland is an island, and so this is what they saw. So even if there's risk of reinfection, which we cannot discount, you're still gaining. So the re there's a new recommendations in the guidelines regarding specifics for people who inject drugs. And so I would advise those who are interested in this topic to go a little bit more. The annual testing, but also more frequent testing, substance use disorder programs, and needle and syringe exchange, which I am fully aware is not available in this, in this state, but, um, and then counsel about measures to reduce the risk of transmission to others. So if you're injecting, can you do it more safely? Um, I think um, there's videos online. I don't know if your institution would like that if you're teaching patients how to do it safely, how to clean the skin and do all that to reduce endocarditis risk. That's a harm reduction ap approach, which you know is meant to acknowledge that this may happen, but I will try to help you reduce the harm associated with those behaviors. That's harm reduction. And this is an important statement. Active drug use, there's, I'll show you the evidence, is not a contraindication for hep C treatment and then um, reinfection screening. And this is just about reproductive age women. Again, it's rising, another reason to treat this young lady. And so let's say a uh, patient's there. She's like, hey, I'm ready to be treated. Treat me. So how do you want to treat this lady? Remember the characteristics? She has, um, she's actually on dialysis, a little bit of a curveball for a young woman. Um, uh, she has <laughs> genotype 3, which is, in our state, the second most common transmitted. So um, in young people, we see a lot of geno 1, but we also see 30% geno 3. Uh, fiber scan is low. I mean, she's a young woman. Uh, fiber sure is a bit confounded in renal disease. I didn't mention that earlier, so uh, I didn't send that. So at this point, what would you choose? Lodipotor sulfosterol, six weeks. Whoa, where, where did that come from? 12 weeks. 
Elba Zerger's Operavir, 12 weeks. GP, 8 weeks, 12 weeks. Softval, something else. I didn't put not treat at all. I didn't let you guys choose that. Some of you may choose that. Anyone recognize? Family Matters? I didn't, I've never seen that show. What? Yeah. There it is. All right. 13 of you are willing to answer. All right. GP times eight weeks. You know, there's, um, again, because of the renal failure, that's the main uh, thing that would push us. Now, Elbazir-Grazopavir is approved and, and able to be used in CKD stage four and five, but remember, it's genotypes one and four, so you guys avoided that mini trap there. So you're going with a pan-genotypic regimen, eight or 12 weeks. Now, um, eight weeks, she does, she's young, she's unlikely to have cirrhosis. Um, as a matter of trivia, for some reason, in patients who are on, have CKD, they actually have slightly lower rates of fibrosis progression in epidemiologic studies. You would think it would be bad, but who knows why. Um, there's all sorts of little things like that. Like African-Americans, actually, in some studies, progress less than um, their counterparts. So, um, but that's on average. Again, you can't predict based on sort of those epidemiologic signals. All right, so what is the treatment option? Well, sometimes you just have certain treatment options that are just defined for you by your health plan, and so that's, uh, that's one scenario. The C CKD comes into play, and GP can be used, and so this is looking at it for 12 weeks. Um, and um, right now for CKD, that's, that's the way it was studied. Um, whether she can receive eight weeks or not is a, um, a question. But nonetheless, um, these studies showed excellent safety, excellent efficacy in those with renal disease, so a great option. Um, Elbazirgrazopravir, this is showing response rates over time. If you're like, what's going on here? This is just going on at week two and four, who's negative? This is the rate you're looking at, fantastic. So again, two great options for renal disease, um, and you know, many had um, uh, other sorts of um, uh, medical issues, but um, SAE, they also had a deferred treatment arm, and they looked at SAEs, and SAEs happen in patients on dialysis, but they were equal. Wow, remarkable, and there's other studies like this which, are quite, which show this. So sometimes just giving a placebo <laughs> looks um, just the same. And so these are why these are the recommended options for CKD stage four, four or five. If they're above 30, you can use the sofosfavir-based regimen. The other kind of mind-blowing thing is how this affects transplant. Actually, Mike alluded to this a little bit. But in many parts of the country where hep C-positive organs or high-risk individuals can become organ donors. And while it's horrible what's going on, especially in New England where I am, um, I've lost, unfortunately, too many patients over the years to the opioid epidemic, um, the, many do become organ donors. And this is a wonderful thing. And we've been transplanting those hep C-positive organs, especially kidneys, into hep C-positive and livers, into hep C-positive people, because you already have hep C. Well, get a new one, maybe it mixes a little bit, but you usually come out with the same hep C you started with, and then you treat the hep C after. And the new thing, though, is giving hep C to a non-infected patient, because unfortunately there are so many overdoses, you could then offer those organs and just treat them afterwards. So how many of you would choose six years on a renal transplant waiting list or get a hep C-positive organ right away and then get it cured afterwards? And which costs less? Actually, the dialysis for six years, all right? Just want to throw it out there and kind of 
I don't know what your transplant center is doing, but this may become standard of care soon for both hearts, lungs, um, et cetera. Now, returning to the question of whether to treat acute phase or not right away, here we're seeing that if a delay in treatment initiation is acceptable, you can monitor for spontaneous clearance. If a decision is made to initiate treatment, use similar treatment, um, and then as those in chronic infection, once it's clear, don't treat. Don't treat something that's not there, okay? That had to be stated, I guess. But if you look in the details, so this is what every insurer looks at, what the previous slide, the details actually say for high-risk individuals, you may want to treat for those transmission benefits. You have them in front of you. If you defer treatment, there's a pretty significant risk they may not be there six to months to a year later, just due to life, due to moving or whatnot, and you have a chance to possibly treat. And so they talk about a surgeon you know, who gets a needle stick, and you want to treat them so they can get back in the OR, because a viremic surgeon um, is usually excluded from the OR. Uh, and then it has the highest risk groups as a reason to treat acute hep C. So in some ways, the, the guidelines may want to flip it and say, like, these are situations where you should treat, and then there are certain situations where you shouldn't, because it didn't make the front headline. But if you look in the text, you could try to show your insurer this. Now, whether that works or not. Now, I showed you ledipasvir sofosphere for six weeks. There are a couple of trials looking at this. What is the concept there? Really, in acute phase, you have an active immune response. You have an active immune system trying to fight off the virus, and can you help it out by providing some treatment? Whereas in chronic phase, that battle is done. Whatever immune system is there, you know, it's still a trillion particles a day. It's just not working anymore. And so is there some, like an extra half or three-quarter or a full drug that can then allow you, with the two agents that you're giving for naive therapy, a shorter course? And that would be cost savings, or co and, and there are actually analyses that show cost savings for this. And so what are the data with those who are on who are actively using or who are in OAT programs. So uh, we're at, right at the money for the, those of you in substance use here. So this is a major trial looking at over 300 individuals who are treated with Elbazugrasopifer for genotypes one and four. The response rates were excellent. Now, how did you get into this? You were on opioid agonist therapy, methadone or buprenorphine, for three months, and you kept 80% of your appointments. That is a subset, <laughs> so you're laughing, because there are some who don't keep 80%. So you're already are picking up some patients. But what were they using? Have you ever seen drug screens and people <laughs> who are on these therapies? They're pinging for all sorts of things. And yet, how well did they take the medications? Extremely well. Motivated patients. This myth that you can't treat patients because they won't be adherent and whatnot, it totally flipped on its head due to this trial. Now, you might say, well, that's people keeping 80% of their appointments. There is a simplified trial, a follow-up trial, using an alternative agent, which is now pangenotypic, recent IDU. What I want to point out is that 74% reported active injection during the treatment, and yet their response rates. Okay, so another myth blown wide open. So numerous studies do show compatibility. I took out the charts for this um, of these agents with methadone and buprenorphine, um, I guess, um, with drugs of abuse. Uh, fentanyl with the PROD, there's some concern. But overall, um, I think we think uh, we can, uh, even if they're using extra things, that it's not going to affect the, um, the drugs you're giving you too much. And if you look at those who were on op uh, medication-assisted therapies or OAT-type things, uh, there was no decrement in SVR across the phase three trials. 
Naltrexone is a frequent one because there used to be this label on it that talked about hepatotoxicity. That was probably acute FC going on while patients were on naltrexone because when you look now, it seems to be very safe. And so they actually, FDA took off a warning, which is really rare. And so, um, so at this point, you do what's best for the patient in terms of what they need. All right, so we get back to her patient. So at this point, she initiates therapy with GP. What other counseling measures are important? This isn't an asked question. It's just you could talk to her about liver health. She's a young 23-year-old woman. What you're more concerned about is how to prevent reinfection, right? That's where probably the majority of your spiel should be with her, whereas other patients are low risk, and you're talking more about the liver health than the reinfection. So this is a meta-analysis. If you're not used to reading these, it's just a bunch of studies, each one on a line. And, and they look at each individual study, and sometimes they cross this sort of the null hypothesis, and so they don't have a statistically significant event. However, if you combine them, you gain power to say, like, is there an effect? And so what they're looking at is the effect of preventing primary hep C in those who are receiving uh, opioid substitution therapy and or uh, needle and syringe exchange programs. The bottom line is that if one is on opioid substitution, there's a 50% associated reduction in incidence. So that should apply to reinfection as well. So if you meet a patient who's not receiving this and they're hopefully willing to go on it, I think the evidence would show that that would be one of the major approaches. Now, needle and syringe exchange programs, again, I'm not aware here, if you're able to provide what we call high coverage, meaning every injection is close to safe, and then you add OST, it's additive, or even perhaps synergistic, a 74% reduction. And that's where you see differences in the country. I'm just showing Indiana, kind of because there's Scott County. Um, which, uh, and the HIV, just the differences in a similarly populated state, the differences in methadone programs. Moreover, these methadone programs were located where? In cities, not in the sparsely populated counties. And so there's a wide, I mean, the people in Scott County or in Austin, Indiana had to drive huge distances to access anything. And at that time, they were, the Indiana University was producing one substance use fellow a year in terms of like training people to provide added therapy. So there's Scott County, Indiana. There's also Hep A associated with the homeless, which is another population, more due to hygiene, but also can affect folks. And people are dying from this. And I'm showing San Diego, but there's a much larger outbreak in Appalachia right now, just thousands of patients with unfortunate hospitalizations and use. So that's all going around here. And Hep B, we have the state of Maine, which just had this network of uh, injection drug users that, that that had an outbreak. And in Massachusetts, which has great policies and access and whatnot, we've had outbreaks of all three, including one that you'll hear about um, that's not quite the same magnitude as, as Scott County. It's about 120 people, I think, at this count, um, but all related to injection drug use of HIV. And we used to think that that was going to go away, but it shows you what can happen. And th this was a group not accessing clean needles and whatnot. So this could explode in your population and be of massive cost later Right? The price of an HIV patient overall, Mike, like their cost of care over a lifetime? Yeah, it's a lot, right? So preventing 140 cases would have been amazing. All right, so this is how I counsel patients, because I talked to you about how I counsel patients about liver health earlier. So now we're talking about other preventive measures, the clean needles, you know, how to literally do it safely, um, safe tattoos, sexual transmission, uh, we do counsel about. I didn't present on sexual transmission uh, too much because we're focused today on, on substance use, but there is another crowd 
especially in Europe, I don't know how much you see here, of HIV positive MSM and using crystal meth and uh, other party drugs, not necessarily injecting. Um, and there, there we see more transmission that's likely sexual, that we think condoms would work, but nobody seems to want to use condoms. So, um, but we do counsel about that for, uh, for the average discordant couple, which is the more likely scenario you might be meeting, how do you counsel on sexual transmission? Can I put anyone on the spot? Low likelihood, very low. So one study, Nora Tarol did in San Francisco, they actually asked longtime monogamous couples how um, often they had sex, relations, um, if, I, if I should use euphemisms, and, um, and, and they took discordant couples. So one, couple, one partner had the virus and one partner did not, and then some did transmit. And she calculated the risk at one in 190,000 sex acts. So you start to do the math and you're like, my goodness, you'd have to have a lot of sex, like more, more than enough sex for a lifetime. All right, that joke didn't go over well. All right, I was at a dinner meeting and I, I stated that and then someone in the back said, speak for yourself. I'm like, all right, whatever. <laughs> hep A and Hep B immunization, super important. I just showed you there are actual outbreaks going on. In Southeast Massachusetts, they actually responded with the novel Hep B adjuvanted um, 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 uh, vaccine. That produces at least like a 70, 80% with one shot. As you know, with the Hep B traditional vaccine, it's like you gotta get three in, and with one or two, it's not really that great. And so they responded to it by actually provision of this more novel vaccine, which to me makes sense, because you're not sure if they're coming back for that second or third vaccine. All right, and then prevention of skin and soft tissue infections, huge. For young men, I've had this one unfortunate case. He was doing great, he was exercising though, and then he was at the gym and someone offered him anabolic steroids. So, I mean, he replaced his sort of endorphin rush with exercise, and he was doing great, and unfortunately engaged in this. So now I counsel patients about that, as well as face tattooing, et cetera. The reinfection incidence post-cure is actually, amongst high-risk populations, it's actually lower than you might imagine, even if they're re-engaging behaviors. I just told you the one-time risk is just 1%, but there's something about engaging in care that seems to reduce the reinfection rate to around in this case, zero to maybe 6%, but on average kind of 5% per year in persons who inject drugs. That's 5%, you're like, oh, that kind of sucks. Well, think about it. You had cured, right, 95 people in the meantime for those five infections. And can you then achieve that population benefit that we talked about earlier? And so when you look at reinfection rates, you can also divide of those injecting versus, I mean, injecting versus non-injecting, and it is higher in those reporting injection but again, less than 5% per year. And if you plug that into models or whatnot, that is actually an acceptable rate if you're able to retreat. Now, are you a one and done state where your Medicaid provides one and then you're done? Yeah, or can you, if you're reinfected, get it again? Oh, great, that's fantastic, that's really huge. By the way, South Carolina gets a B plus on the, um, on the access to DAA agents. Like, um, there are many states that get a D or an F. Let's put Texas in that category. Alabama's, what's your grade, D? F minus, all right. <laughs> so you guys are a B plus. All the work that you've done to reduce those restrictions, you've elevated. I'm pretty sure you were not graded as highly a couple years ago. But um, anyways, we're an A minus, by the way, in Massachusetts. Not there. All right, so, um, so anyways, I just wanted to go through sort of the package that as a hep C provider, I've learned to provide related to substance use. I finally got my license to provide buprenorphine as a bridge, perhaps, to expand that capacity. 
And we're seeing the opposite, where now substance use providers are also adding hep C. You were mentioning you had a patient who would not go see um, Eric or whoever you have access to, and so can you do this? Do you feel more confident you can do this? I mean, he's, he's doing it. You want to tell the story, or it's a good story? He's doing it, yeah. Yeah. Trust is a big issue. So, yeah. And I'm treating him, and he brought me biscuits yesterday. Woo, good ones. All right. I take biscuits from my patients. All right. So then um, one thing is there's sobriety requirements, which you've heard about. And you know your state is actually shaded not as darkly as others, which is a great thing. Remember that fibrosis restrictions really are the same thing, because most of our patients will have low fibrosis levels. So you really need both gone to release the drug. So co-localization of care, this is ID doctors deciding that they want to get their buprenorphine um, licenses. Um, there are other models. You've already heard of an ECHO, which is kind of a telemedicine type of approach. Um, mobile clinics are another approach. You're trying to overcome geographic barriers. Um, there are literal hollows in West Virginia where they really have no idea how to get patients out to medical facilities. So they're thinking about how to get care there. So there's a lot of ways in which we are redesigning our clinics to uh, make it more, I guess, people who inject drugs are people. Like once you meet a few, you're like, well, this could have been my daughter's classmate, or it is my daughter's classmate, or it is my nephew, or it is my neighbor's son, or you meet patients and then you kind of change your thinking. And so thinking about the way your clinic intakes patients, answers phone calls, and then meeting patients where they're at, if they're 20 minutes late, you know, if their cell phone's broken, you know, there's extra things that happen to patients with substance use disorder. And so we've tried to meet patients where we're at. We learned that from HIV, right? It's so important on a personal and public health basis to get patients on treatment, same day treatment. What are we gonna do about hep C in terms of sort of thinking about our clinics and making, it, making them more friendly? And enlisting teams, as you heard about, all very important. And finally, advocating. I showed, tried to show you pieces of evidence regarding harm reduction and why it works for hep C prevention and whatnot, or the evidence base. And you know some of these myths that we've had actually are not true. All right, so um, trying to gain back on time. We're running a bit over, but the conclusions are shown here. Um, we must eliminate hep C. If you want to make those cases go away and not be an issue, um, we need to reduce the silence by testing more and finding it before it transmits to others. Stigmas, the trust issue, these things are actually pretty big, and so, um, uh, there's a lot of reasons why patients no-show to Eric's clinic. I mean, he's a super friendly guy once you meet him, but that initial barrier of getting there, right? Um, and then address the substance use. I mean, um, a lot of hepatologists kind of shrug their shoulders and say, come back in six months. That is such an easier practice model rather than setting up things so you make the referrals, you make the links, you make the follow-up phone calls um, that are often necessary to help patients out. Uh, and so the structures that you have, the harm reduction, you can achieve it, medication-assisted therapies, that's not illegal. So you can do buprenorphine, et cetera. Vaccine would be very helpful. And then the counterproductive restrictions, which are really neither evidence-based or patient-centered. All right, I think that's it for this talk. Any questions? I hope it wasn't too out there, like treating the high-risk folks here. And there's, there's a lot of smiles in here. So I know some audiences are like, what the hell are you doing? <clears throat> but we're is, doing it. 
Um, do do the folks in South Carolina know if anybody is doing any advocacy work to change laws around syringe exchange programs? Um, we work with Deodas, which is the largest uh, alcohol and drug abuse. It's funded by the gov governor, and they are trying. Currently, we are still away away from needle exchange programs, but there are they have 46 outpatient treatment centers around the state and they have other in, some inpatient facilities. So not there yet. Um, uh, I, think, I don't think we'll get to needle exchange for a few years over here. I think yeah. um, where we are, uh, I don't Rem think. Remember where, what Indiana had to do. So Indiana had 100 cases, 180 in the end of HIV. And, and you multiply that, and the governor, who happens to be another prominent post at the moment of Indiana, he's now our vice president, um, dragged his heels for a little while. But finally, he prayed about it and agreed to allow syringe exchange, and they stopped the uh, epidemic in its tracks. I mean, HIV's transmission risk, um, so I said 1% for hep C. HIV is much lower than that. It's like tenfold lower than that. It really takes a convergence of a lot of factors. But my state is kind of demonstrating that it can happen outside of Scott County. And so before it happens here, I mean, it's... Uh, Virginia is an in interesting situation because the legislature approved it, but then now they are having trouble getting anyone to open the first one. So it's kind of allowable, but then the law was written with some vagaries that make law enforcement, you can talk to them individually, but these are often elected officials who kind of need to deal with things. <laughs> and, and so um, they have a law, but they don't have an open syringe exchange for now over a year. So there's multiple levels of advocacy. Can I just make one comment for those people venturing into MAT? I mean, I'm not an expert on substitution therapy by any means, but out of Greenville, there is a tele-echo program that is starting MAT where they do the same kind of thing, where if somebody is venturing into MAT, it is a fo you need the resources, but if you are trying to venture into the opioid substitution therapy and you need guidance, there is a telehealth program out of Greenville um, that we, I can get you information on, so that yeah. it can be a, a support. System. I think my friend Alan Litwin might be involved. He's he moved uh, down to New York City. Yeah. Have and and I didn't present this with him. We are currently have treated um, 600 individuals with um, recently active drug use defined as just three months. Many of the trials defined it more as six months, and as you know, that three to six months period you can stabilize even further. So we we narrowed it to three months. So it's a highly unstable population. And while results are not available yet, I can tell you this is US-based data, not some like crazy European place where they do all sorts of European foreign ideas, um, where their harm reduction is much higher, frankly, than the US. And so this is more of a US-based data set. So we'll learn a lot from eight different places, jurisdictions, and whatnot. Cities like Baltimore and us and San Francisco, but also like West Virginia and New Mexico, some interesting places. Great. So we're going to break for lunch, but before we do three quick things. One, um, remember to turn in your PIF form to Kim in the back, who, wave your hand, there's Kim. Uh, just turn that in as you go out to get your lunch. Um, second thing is we'll be coming back and having a working lunch, and I'll quickly go through the, the last formal talk, and then we'll have time for the part of I have a patient with, um, and we'll, that's how we'll wrap up. And the third thing is I just learned very exciting news that um, Mike Myers is going to be making Austin Powers 4 as soon as, <laughs> so just stay tuned for that. So I'm excited about that.